banter. So <laughs> Bruce hey, banter. I had I had my I had my car anecdote last time. Someone else is gonna have to step up. I just stupidly said Bruce banter. I was I was trying to like that. I was trying, trying to side, trying to cut that. Out. I was trying to sidestep <laughs> from your dad joke, Jess. So, um, cut, cut, that's, cut. This is my OC. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> okay. Here we are again, another episode, 50 years <laughs> and 50, counting. 52 yeah. 52 years, years of Trade Waiters. Yeah. Um, Thanks for sticking around this long. Yeah. <laughs> so like <laughs> we are here today to talk about I Kill Giants by Joe Kelly and Ken Nomura. Or I guess I should say J.M. Ken Nomura. This was my pick. And uh, maybe we should uh, talk a little bit about ourselves first before we talk about this book. As usual, or as, as it seems to be the case recently, we're short some trade waiters. Should I, should I ever say that again? Betrayed waiters. <laughs> we, yeah. we are not waiting yeah. for the trade waiters. Yeah, yeah. We, we had a few trade waiters we were waiting for, not anymore. I believe uh, both Angela and Kathleen are in the process of uh, slaying a giant. Um, which takes a little bit more priority over recording a podcast. Giants are a problem. You gotta yeah. slay those giants. Yeah, I think I think Angela's specifically dealing with a work-related giant, so that means it's about five times as big as an average giant. Definitely bigger than a <laughs> podcast giant. Yeah. <laughs> I do have a character-building question for those of you that are here. Okay. Um. So my question is: uh, Did you ever have a fantasy personality as a child and i will some the one asking i'll lead us off so my name is jeff ellis um and i would say that i think i had a pretty in-depth fantasy life as a child i had like a favorite teddy bear named sister gucci and i have no idea why that was the name of this bear but that was the name and we would go on lots of adventures and uh, all the different stuffed animals had different personality traits. And uh, when I started reading Calvin and Hobbes, I just wholesale uh, stole everything from Calvin. I used to bounce around in a cardboard box that was my time machine slash transmogrifier at all. So yeah, I definitely was a weird little kid. <laughs> I remember after I read Calvin and Hobbes, I wanted to buy a red wagon so I could, like, fly down hills. In what what would you call that? That the thing that he rides in? Oh, that's, yeah, it's a radio flyer. Yeah, <laughs> it's a radio flyer wagon. Yeah, like I really wanted one of those because I also wanted to imitate him because I thought he was so cool. But um, did you want to bounce down hills in your wagon and like? wax poetic about postmodernist philosophy with your stuffed animal? I don't like think Calvin? I was there. <laughs> Wasn't quite there. I probably just would have fallen at the bottom of the hill. <laughs> but, um, yeah, my... I definitely had, like, a fantasy imaginary personality as a kid. 
and it was that I was a werewolf. I definitely went through a period mm. when I was a little kid where I literally thought I was a werewolf. <laughs> and another kid did as well. I think just because I was so sure of myself. Like, I wasn't <laughs> trying to trick him, but it just happened that way. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's great. How old were you? Um, I would... I think I was under 10. Okay. Yeah, I so like I feel like maybe the 7 to 8 range. Were you keeping your eye on the moon? I was. <laughs> I was. I remember I was hanging out with this other kid, and I was. I kept staring at the moon because I thought I was a werewolf, and he just looked over and said, you're definitely a werewolf. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, I'm Jonathan, and uh, I definitely had a very active imagination as a kid, but I don't think I ever really took that imagination out into the real world. I think I pretty much kept it t- confined to storytelling of various kinds, uh, either with toys or by drawing or just like telling stories just uh, to anyone who would listen, uh, most of my parents. And... So I, I did that, like, constantly, but I don't, uh, I never sort of exported any of that out into the, the quote-unquote real world. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so, like, I had, like, catalogs of all my different stories. None of these were actually things that I'd written out. These were mostly just, like, existed entirely in my head, and then I'd, like, make bits and pieces of them, either with Lego or by drawing them or whatever. But there was, there's no archive that you can go back and find, except for, like, lists of stories or, like, random drawings or something from them. So, uh, our book today deals with a girl with very rich and full fantasy life, or possibly exists possibly in not. a rich and full fantasy existence. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I think, before you go further, I think we should say that this episode... If you're not familiar with how the Trade Waiters works, uh, we will be talking about spoilers. Mm. This is a book where spoilers will matter. Oh, yeah. So if you have not read this book and you plan to, maybe read the book first. Yeah, yeah. Definitely you want to read this book before you listen to this podcast. Um, so before we start about start talking about the book, let me talk about the creators. So uh, Joe Kelly is an American comic book writer, penciler, and editor. He has written for such titles as Deadpool, Uncanny X-Men, and Action Comics. He is also um, the creator of the animated series Ben 10. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I did not know that. I think he's most famous for his writing on Deadpool and uh, Uncanny X-Men. And uh, J.M. Ken Nimura is a super interesting person. He was hard to find information on. Uh, But he is a cartoonist and illustrator based in Tokyo. And he um, has been a professional illustrator since 2005. He graduated from fine arts at the Complutense University in Spain. He also did a semester at Academy Royale des Beaux-Arts in Brussels, Belgium. Uh, I Kill Giants is his first major North American work. And uh, I Kill Giants is being adapted into a live-action movie, which is going to be directed by Anders Walter. What did you guys think of I Kill Giants? I liked it on the <laughs> whole. Yeah, I, um, I thought the art was fantastic. I don't actually know if I can think of somebody to compare it to. It was a real treat. 
Mm -hmm. Um, Really, really unique, um, really interesting art. Yeah, if there's uh, one thing I took away from this is I am a huge fan of J.M. Ken Nomura. Yes. Uh, It's a really fun, I would say, sort of like a North American comic and manga fusion sort of art style like it had this feels very sort of modern european yeah yeah sorry it's like that european flavor it reminds me of um when we were reading um uh last man oh yeah that's true that's actually a good comparison for the art yeah it's sort of european but manga it's a little of everything which is a really interesting i mean it makes sense for the artist if he's lived on different continents that he would be pulling inspiration from lots of different sources uh, but yeah, I don't think that without uh, without knowing any context, I don't know that I would be able to pin down where this artist was from, because it's such a, a sort of a global style almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it kind of makes me think of the storytelling in the. It kind of makes me think of the storytelling in the book, where a lot of it's familiar. There are some tropes used, but on the whole, it's a very unique work. And from this, these many things that are familiar, something original comes forth. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. there's there's bits of this art style that feel familiar, but on the whole, I can't quite pin it down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it has like it's it's got this lovely kind of loose, um, kind of messy sort of ink style, but it also mm-hmm. seems to have like a lot of care and draftsmanship still still happening. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though it also sort of has this kind of nice roughness to it, um, yeah. There's nothing that's really unclear in the art, mm-hmm. despite the sketchiness. Yeah, yeah. It kind of I mean, there's aspects of it that remind me a little bit of uh, Jeff Lemire's work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, just in terms of like the really um, expressive inking style, I think just the kind of rough brush edges and stuff that come in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so maybe. Uh, now we all we jumped ahead to talking about the art. So I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, no. I was gonna say I feel like that's almost maybe indicative of uh, that maybe we are all on board with the art and maybe we're not as on board with the story. Um, so I will maybe attempt to summarize the story mm-hmm. and then you guys can jump in. Okay. Uh, and then we'll get your thoughts as well. But if I if I'm summarizing incorrectly as well, uh, please jump in. So I think we sort of are introduced to our. Uh, our main character, and uh, she's a very eccentric girl who I think is, I can't remember now if it was like she's moved into a new school or not, but she is definitely like Barbara is her name, and Barbara is basically like the really introverted girl with a book sitting in the back row, and you get the impression she spends a lot of time getting sent to the principal's office, and she's often disrupting class. And her big claim is that she finds giants and she kills giants. And hence our title. Uh, and so she's really concerned that a giant is coming. Um, when she comes home from school, you see that she's got some somewhat of a dysfunctional home life. Uh, she doesn't seem to have any parents on hand. Her older sister is trying to hold everything together by a thread and she's got a horrible horrible younger brother and uh, she's a big fan of Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy and then early on you sort of are it's revealed to the reader that 
even if they're not real, she sees fairies and fantasy creatures all around her. And then she makes friends with the girl next door, uh, whose name I totally blank Sophie. on. Sophie. Sophie, thank you. So she, Sophie is the girl next door who makes friends with her and is sort of charmed by the fact that this girl's claiming to be hunting for giants. And then in the background of all this, you get the impression that there is some things going on at her home that need to be addressed. Uh, Barbara is brought in to see the counselor and they have a lot of uncomfortable interactions uh, where this counselor's trying to coax Barbara kind of out of her shell, get her to talk about what's going on in her home life. And then there's a bully who's picking on Barbara and picking on Sophie. And um, the book kind of comes to a head with the, the climax of the story is kind of answering the question, is there going to be a giant or not? And then a giant shows up. Or and maybe... Or does it? it? Yeah. That's never really made clear yeah. in the story. But Bar- it, it, to Barbara's mind, she finds the giant and slays the giant. But the the big revelation in this is um, her mother is dying of cancer. And her belief is that this giant has come to take her mother. And by killing the giant, she will save her mother's life. And the reveal, the twist, uh, is that the giant had come for Barbara and Barbara has defeated the giant to save herself but it does not save her mother um, and uh, the the outcome of this though is that then Barbara finally faces her fear which for the longest time she's been hiding out in the basement and avoiding the stairs that lead up upstairs because upstairs is where her mother's room is where her mother is on life, life support. On, on life support yeah. essentially uh, and so Barbara finally spends some quality time with her mother and she's actually with her mother for the last the last month before she passes and um sort of the the takeaway at the end of the the story is um you're stronger than you you think you are so yeah that's sort of the whole story in a nutshell Mm -hmm. um but we're gonna get uh some feedback from you guys and now we have a bonus commentary from Jam. Hi. I made it. I had to slay my own giant on the way here. Sorry that. About that is actually what we said you were doing. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> well, it work, I, I got it. A, a giant work-related A giant, giant workload. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, what did you think of this book? I enjoyed it. Uh, I felt overall it was a really strong work. I wasn't sure at first where it was going, and I do have some let's say, reservations with certain stylistic directions or certain stylistic decisions that were taken. But overall, I think it uh, is a really good book. I like that it's self-contained, which is, mm-hmm. I don't know, it feels like somehow I, I when looking at the cover and looking at uh, kind of where it sits in where where you expect comics to sit, I guess. I didn't expect it to be standalone. I expected it to be part of a much longer story. And so for it to wrap up so nicely was actually a bit of a, was a pleasant surprise. And Mm -hmm. I thought the twist was really interesting. I thought it it made me cry for sure. Uh, And I think it had some really powerful messages about, you know, things that we all encounter in life and coming to terms with reality that isn't always the way you imagined it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like, as I was reading this, uh, I think the the ending is what made the book work for me because the ending was, like, had a lot of depth and a lot of 
surprises and it was like everything about the ending was unexpected I didn't expect any of it and I thought the way that the ending happened was basically perfect like this is like there there may have been tears as I was uh sitting in Canadian tire uh, <laughs> waiting for my car to get fixed. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. Everyone assumed always, it was for other reasons. I always make the mistake <laughs> of reading books for trade waiters in public. <laughs> I have not learned my lesson, apparently. Oh. Um, oh, but I, I read the end like on the SkyTrain. Okay. It's just like, I'm fine, yeah. everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely cried through an entire play yeah. ride reading it. Um, <laughs> it was uh, interesting. Like the, the first part of the book, uh, I was... As I was reading it, I was feeling more and more anxious because I was, uh, based on what we knew about the story, I was expecting the twist to be some kind of abusive situation or neglect or bad parenting. Uh, and I was not looking forward to that coming up in the story. But I think, in retrospect, I think that anxiety actually helps the story because Barbara is feeling that anxiety too. And I think it's it's a really interesting choice to leave the reveal to what's actually going on so late in the story. Because by that point in the story, every other character knows and not everyone wants to talk about it. Like Barbara certainly doesn't want to talk to anyone about this. But Barbara knows, her friend knows, her like the kid that's bullying her knows, the counselor knows, everybody knows except the reader. Uh, and so the twist... Like it, if it said, if it sounds terrible to say it, but I felt relief knowing that the monster was cancer uh, <laughs> and not something worse. Um, but I mean, that doesn't the position that the character's in makes sense. Like um, the arc was a good arc, uh, and yeah, and the ending was like felt important and like relevant and and good and uh, sad, obviously. Yeah, I think I felt a, a similar kind of relief for a different reason. Uh, I felt a relief that the giant actually was a metaphor, or I guess this is up for debate. Okay. Because hmm. I feel like the story was leading the reader also in a direction of like, the monsters are real. No, the monsters are definitely not real. Like all the other kids are, all the other characters in the book are like, these are delusions. But the way the narrative and the art portrays it, it's like, it's really an open question, even mm. into the final battle, right? Mm -hmm. And perhaps even afterwards, right? It's, so it's a, still an open question, but the takeaway that I had is that, no, this was a metaphor. And I I liked sitting with it being a metaphor rather than real monsters. I feel like mm. if this book had taken a completely different twist, which is no monsters are real and everyone had to everyone Barbara's life had to admit that monsters were real all along and apologize to Barbara, I would have felt let down, I think, yeah. as a Oh, reader. yeah, majorly, yeah. Oh, and, for and sure, would, for I'll sure. Like, my interpretation of it is that uh, maybe the monster is real and maybe it isn't, but it either way, it's definitely a metaphor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is the only way that that can work. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, this, if, if, if it had just turned into Barbara slaying giants, like, that would have just gone off the rails. Like, it... <laughs> The metaphor was important. Yeah. Didn't, didn't the other kids, the bully and Sophie, see the giant, though? Maybe. And there was I the mean, big storm. They saw something. There like, was the storm, and then um, Barbara gets sucked into the water and disappears for a while. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that um, what I would say, and this is my interpretation, but I would say that the book is from Barbara's perspective, 
and Barbara is not a reliable narrator. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. her interpretation is that the other girls see the giant and are in on this with her. But there's enough ambiguity in how everyone interacts with her post-giant fight that it could just be that she ran out into a storm and got swept away by a wave and... Well, they said there like, was a tornado. Or sorry, that's it. I'm sorry, got taken away. Sorry, tornado. got taken away by a tornado. And that, you know, um, I don't know. Like, I just feel like she's interpreting things to suit her narrative. But I think you could still read it as it being something in her head and not necessarily real, if that makes sense. I agree with you. And there are certain points that I notice that I feel support that narrative. And it's actually environmental. Mm. I found myself during the reading being kind of confused about where Barbara lived. Mm. Because sometimes it looked like she's in a small house on a regular residential street. And then other times it's a large house on a hill facing an ocean. Mm. And when she's confronting the giant, it's a large house on a hill confronting an ocean. But when they come back to where Barbara is, you know, and the cops are like... Here's your kid back. She's back on this residential street. And when she first meets mm. her high school or her, her grade school friend, she's on a residential street. So I don't know. Maybe I was just really misreading where things take place. But I think that that supported to me that even if you see something happening in the text, right, the quote unquote text of the work, uh, which in which I'm including the visuals, Mm-hmm. It still may be metaphorical, metaphorical. It still may be imaginary. Mm-hmm. And I think the, yeah. the magical creatures that she meets throughout the story are sometimes drawn so that they're transparent and clearly meant to be made up, and other times not transparent. And so at that, those times, it's not clear whether they're meant to be real or not. Yeah. So yeah, that that could all be because yeah. of a unreliable narrator. And that's that totally slipped by me. But thank you for pointing that out. I just went to the last scene of the story and. Yeah, like the house totally looks like it's in this normal suburban area. It's even got hedges in front of it, and it's nice and flat. And yeah, clearly earlier on, there was this giant hill with these long, like, a thousand stairs to get to the front door. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I I don't know how else to interpret that, I Mm -hmm. guess. Yeah. Yeah, like, I, I definitely felt like this was a story from an unreliable narrator's perspective. So I sort of found myself getting comfortable with that I wasn't necessarily seeing what was really happening. I was seeing what was going on in someone's head, you know? And I think that got kind of got reinforced with, there was a scene where her sister is like yelling at her and saying, you have to deal with what's going on. Well, essentially saying you have to deal, we have to deal with what's going on with mom, but all of her words are scratched out and censored. Yeah. And it's sort of like Barbara is censoring that in her own head. She doesn't want to hear it. So then we don't get to read it. So it's mm. like she's controlling what we, the reader, are, are 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 taking in, you know? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That was like another thing that I felt reinforced that point mm. of view. And I thought it was a really strong choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really liked that choice. And uh, it added to the overall suspense because I, I agree with what you said earlier, John, and that the twist really makes this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think if, if there's one complaint I have, it's... There's a scene where she walks by her mother's room and looks in and her mother's like on some kind of weird torture chamber, like screaming her name out. And I felt like that, that was a wrong choice. I feel like leaving her mother's room as this place she doesn't want to go to, but for unknown reasons, 
like until the very end like i felt like that really needed to not be revealed and i think showing her mother on a torture rack was like too much it was showing too much to the reader um at the time i found it confusing yeah 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 Yeah, i was i was just super confused Uh yeah yeah and that's the thing like i feel like it would have been better to leave it ambiguous because then it would be less confusing and then the impact later would be stronger because then there isn't this sort of oh, but I thought she was in a torture rack. Oh, no, she yeah. had cancer? Like, it was showing too much. Hmm. Like, we talked mm-hmm. about, like, show, don't tell, or I think this was sort of more like, don't, don't show. show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't show. Infer in the dialogue, and that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, just as further evidence of uh, the the narration, uh, if you look at the end of the story, there's sort of a, a wide shot of the house and the, the surrounding neighborhood, and from the destruction, it's it could be a tornado that suddenly changes direction for some reason, mm. or it could be destruction from a giant, and it's still unclear. Like that that wide shot doesn't tell us, mm. doesn't answer the question for us. Uh, and then there's another scene earlier on where uh, Barbara's wearing a suit of armor. Uh, at no other point are we given any information that she has a real suit of armor, so. Mm. I took that suit of armor well, to also be a metaphor. Well, also, when the bully punches her, the suit of armor just crumbles away instantly. Oh, where? when was that? Uh, I missed that Like, part. she's sitting on the bench, and then basically um, the bully comes up to her and says, you got me, like, a note sent home to my parents, and they get into a fight, and that's where Barbara accidentally punches Sophie in the face. Oh, right. Um, okay. Yeah, you're right. All that fight happened at the bus stop where the, the, the beginning of the story is Barbara waiting at the bus stop in her armor and then there's a flashback uh-huh. and then it takes you back to that moment from the beginning of the chapter and the bully punches her and then her armor just breaks apart. Yeah, it, just, it disappears basically. You're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is confusing, but like... No, yeah, that actually the, makes it less confusing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or no, but I, just if like everything the, fits together, it makes the, it less The fact confusing. that there is maybe some of these... The, the fact that they're kind of doing a frame flashback narrative with fantasy things, I could see how sometimes readers could sort of be like, wait, when did that happen? I forgot when. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's a pretty um, bold and interesting move in a comic, actually, because I feel like in other mediums, it might be a bit easier, like, say, movies. It might be a little bit easier to express that this part is fantastical mm. or it's part of a fantasy or this this element isn't real. But in comics where everything is rendered with the same level of realism, all of the fantasy elements look pretty real. Like the armor just, it just looks like she's literally in armor. Yeah. Or the the torture rack scene, that just looks completely mm-hmm. real. Like that's how, or the giant looks completely real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and in comics, there's no transition from one to the other. Like the armor disappears in the gutter. Mm-hmm. Like it's there one yeah. panel and gone the next. Yeah, yeah. Whereas maybe you could do um, a slow fade. Yeah, like in in, a, on film, you'd have to solve the problem of how do I make this armor go away? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, in a comic, it just clips out. So it's a really um, interesting decision. And uh, as a technique, like it could could be used in different ways. I think it's super cool. I don't know if I've actually seen a comic do that before. And I think that also breaks a rule, which is in film. Or I mean, quote unquote, rule. But apparently, I've heard that if you show something happening it's supposed to have actually happened. Like, say I say, oh, um, Jam, I uh, I biked here. And then it cuts to footage of me biking and it's it's realistic footage. Like, it's actually just B-roll of me cycling. Hmm. And I'm telling a lie in the story. 
apparently you're not supposed to do that because it's so confusing because the audience will assume that that is true and not mm. a lie and it's a confirmed truth right does I that have, make sense I, it makes sense okay. although i've seen it broken a lot yes and it's an aspect that i do enjoy because of this confusion uh, yes. the, the thing that comes to mind is uh emma lee uh, mm. yeah. the French film where Emily is describing these fantastical notions of what she imagines is happening in other parts of Paris mm-hmm. and I don't think we're ever meant to assume that it's real mm-hmm. and I've also seen it done but I can't think of a specific example where someone is telling a story and it's portrayed one way and then they change their mind they're like actually I was lying oh, and, yeah, and yeah, sometimes yeah. you see the character uh-huh. like oh I had flowers oh actually I'm lying I didn't have flowers and you see uh-huh. the character like Throwing yeah. the flowers away yeah. and continuing to walk. I can see yeah. this very vividly, but I the don't know. The footage keeps was. changing, mm-hmm. and, they, and then they're like, well, actually, I was in a suit, and then they just replay the footage, but the person's in a suit, and then you know that it's not true. Yeah. Um, but that's sort of like through repetition. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So with this armor scene, um, it's, it's just uh, portrayed as being real. So it's really cool. Maybe it's to put us in her shoes where she can't, she doesn't feel like there's separation. Yeah. And then we're forced into that as well. Yeah. Mm. I agree with that. Like, because of how real it feels to us, we are forced to identify with how real it feels to Barbara. Yeah. Mm. And I I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. I don't see this and just the entire concept of an unreliable narrator, Mm -hmm. which you see more often in fiction, like in novels, but you don't see often in comics. And Mm. this is probably a reason why yeah (laughs) yeah yeah but i I like uh as a reader being given work to do Mm -hmm. like i like that the author is like expecting me to do some work to figure out what's going on yeah yeah i uh this is this conversation is actually making me excited for the film adaptation so yeah, how will how they do it? Approach that. Yeah. Probably badly. <laughs> yeah. Well, the cover that I bought of the digital edition seemed to have a movie cover. Yeah. And Barbara looked way, way older. Yeah. And mm. kind of, it looks like they took the style mm. of the final fight scene and oh. made like an action movie about it. But I haven't seen a trailer or anything like that. So. Okay. I saw a trailer a long time ago and I kind of forgot it. Mm. But um, it's what made me... Seeing that trailer is what made me decide I should I should read this comic before this movie comes out. Yeah, I'm glad we get a chance to like experience it in amber, yeah. so to yeah. speak. Yeah, yeah. I overall like I I enjoyed this. I definitely uh, sort of felt like it might have slowed down a little bit in the middle, and I felt like the ending was a big payoff, and it, everything sped up at the end. And I I really like the ending. I was actually kind of curious what your guys' thoughts are on. Um, there were some points in the story with, um, like, dialogue from her brother that I felt was just, like, unnecessary and took me out of the story where, like, her brother's just making these really inappropriate comments about, like, well, what are you on your period? And, yeah. like, and I understand that, like, maybe the writer is intending to be like, oh, yeah, her brother's, like, a jerk. But, like, does that matter to the narrative? And then do we have to, like, have, like, three or four, like, period jokes in this, in this work? Because it's sort of derails a little bit like what is trying to be more of a sensitive poignant story like it just didn't seem necessary to me i agree with you that is one of the criticisms that i have from that work that joke is there and it's there's a couple of other choices where they harp on the fact that barbara likes baseball and a bunch of people like deliberately attack her for that not being a girl thing that felt I don't know how to describe it, just really inauthentic mm-hmm. in yeah. terms of experience. And there's also a point where 
Barbara calls her gym teacher a slur. Yeah, yes. I really didn't like. I yeah. didn't like that choice. I, yeah. yeah, there's some like there's a couple of things that I thought were homophobic, and then not addressed at all. They're just left there on the table for us. Yeah, I. I mean, I. I don't know. Um, obviously, I can't speak for the author, but like when I read that stuff, I sort of imagined uh, some older man being like, "Yeah, that's how teenagers talk." Like. I'm just being authentic. And it's like, no. And even if they are, it doesn't need to be there. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, I have no idea what the author's intentions or thoughts were. What I will say about the character, Barbara, is that I think she doesn't like women. She has a real issue mm. with women, That's with other women. And I felt like I picked up on that a lot. Um, I don't know what other people think. I think, one of the really rough parts was what, yeah, when she calls the gym teacher that slur just because she's has short hair. Really, yeah, just sort of a hateful thing to say, like a truly hateful thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. There was also the other one that I uh, picked up on was, and I don't know, you guys might disagree whether you think this counts, but there's the a point where the the bully, I forget her name, is talking to Sophie and like whispers in her ear, "I like you." But, like, this bully has, like, no redeeming qualities. So I feel like maybe that was meant to be kind of like a, a homophobic situation. Hmm. But I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to say. I'm not sure that... Here's my read on what you said, Jess. I'm not sure that the character Barbara's dislike of women was something that was done intentionally. I felt mm. it was something that was bleeding out from the author. Mm. Mm, mm, yeah, mm. I mean, I hear you. I've, I've, I've suspected that. I personally don't know. I'm not going to yeah. say anything about the author's intent, about the author's internal world. Only talking about the character. Um, I noticed a trope that I've seen a lot where if there is a female protagonist, she is gender non-conforming or GNC, and she doesn't like gender-conforming women. So there's a scene of Barbara on the bus. Um, I think it's on page 19, because I, I actually cited it because I felt like it was going to come up. And she sees these traditionally feminine women with long hair talking about girl things, and, and Barbara's just vitriolic about it off the bat. There's, yeah, there's sort of instances where when Sophia, um, who becomes her friend, sort of approaches her, she she's instantly scowling. Like, she just sees another girl, feminine girl, long hair, scowling right away. There's really no reason to have that reaction. Mm-hmm. I thought that her circle of friends were all male. They're playing D&D. It's all guys. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the slur later on to the gym teacher. She also so I, talks about, uh, like, uh, Barbie dolls at one point and, like, just frames it as like obviously I don't like Barbies. Yeah. Mm. And I feel like the the um phrase to like capture her personality would be I'm not like other girls. Yeah. Which mm. is a phrase that I'm very sad about when I hear people <laughs> say it. Because uh-huh. other women are great. Um, you know. Mm-hmm. And I see I see this a lot in stories with um female protagonists that the gender non conforming woman is sometimes praised or seen as superior to women who have more traditionally feminine traits. And these can even include traits about, you know, like diplomacy and anti-violence that sometimes women who are more um, violent are shown as superior, which I also have, I take issue with. I take issue with violence as a concept for Mm -hmm. men and for women. I don't think violence is a superior way of being. 
Yeah, and I would say she is more violent mm -hmm. as well. She's a violent character. Yeah, that absolutely carries through in this work. Yeah, Yeah. and I I got that. I've seen this trope exercise before. I agree with you. Where especially if when it was nascent to have female protagonists. It was like, oh, we're going to break the barriers and make a female protagonist, but she's cool. She's not like other girls. Mm. And so they push it really over the top in a way that does become misogynistic, almost, Mm. uh, in a way that I agree is not necessary. But again, I don't know how much that is... I don't think it's good. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know yeah. if it was like, I don't think they were trying to make a point with making her misogynistic. It would be interesting if that carried back around mm. and there was like a reason. Mm. But mm-hmm. because I didn't see a reason, that's why what makes me think that it was not intentional. It was just a faux pas, perhaps. Yeah. yeah I think that's a good way to put it. Like, a, this is an unexamined bias <laughs> in the author, which doesn't need to be there for the story to work. Uh, and is just there because he hasn't thought it through. Yeah, but I could be wrong. It does. It the 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 character makes choices that we are here to examine. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I'm not sure um, exactly what I said when we talked about Americus a while back. Um, and I might have even changed my viewpoint in terms of author intention. But at least the the way the characters were portrayed, I saw this in Americus as well, where the more um, the woman in Woodshop. Uh, the more masculine women were sort of praised as good, and the women who were more feminine were basically evil, hmm. uh, and, who ha- and who had feminine traits were, were evil. And so this comes up, I feel like this comes up a lot in stories about um, high school, or stories where, yeah, there are young, like sort of high school age women involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this definitely felt like, um, like I, I could sort of, I could tell that this was like an older man writing a young teenage character. <laughs> Like it just sort of had a little bit of clunkiness, like some of the di- like yeah, some of the like the slurry dialogue I felt was just like yeah, like you know teenagers they're all edgy like that, right? Like that's what kids do these days. Like, <laughs> you know, it felt a little bit out of touch at points. It's interesting because like um, now that you guys were kind of examining it, I sort of feel like with the fact that she has these unresolved issues with her mother, that she is like disrespectful or abrasive around other women, like older women, women that are maternal in her life. I can see that making sense. But the fact that it's just extended to like all females around her, like maybe if it was just more targeted, like she just couldn't get along with her teacher or the counselor, but she was still okay with like her friends, you know, um, maybe that would read then as making more sense. Like, Oh, she's got these mother issues and it's, it's, projecting onto these other maternal figures like that could maybe work if the author had thought it through but as you say i don't think the author necessarily thought that part through yeah also it doesn't quite match up because there's two very like when there is the reveal of the mother and what the situation is with her kind of as you were saying before john if this was an abusive situation then that would make sense. Mm. But the mother is shown as like very warm and caring and just sick mm-hmm. and Barbara doesn't want to confront the fact that she's losing someone who she loves very much. Mm-hmm. And her sister is also very caring and responsible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that doesn't Yeah, yeah. That doesn't match to me. No, no, and that's yeah. the thing. Like yeah. it, it's like I'm I'm sort of like seeing it as like here's how we could finesse this as an yeah. editor, but it's too late <laughs> now, it's been published. Yeah. Like, See <laughs> I feel like the Barbara being violent and sort of standoffish and not wanting to make friends with anybody. I can see that as being a result of the situation with her mother. 
kids are complicated, people are complicated. When bad things happen, how it affects you can happen in a myriad of different ways. And that part didn't surprise me, that the, the sort of the cause and effect there, that uh, her mother is facing this illness, uh, and so therefore Barbara is like lashing out at everyone around her. Like mm-hmm. That I understood. Yeah. Uh, and I do feel like the her sister and the counselor are well-written characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't like the bully at all. Like, mm. I don't think she was well-written well at all. There was, like, nothing there. Yeah, the bully so, sort of fell flat for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you get you get the fat, ugly bully trope, too, which mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just, I'm really not a fan. <laughs> you yeah. know? Like, yeah. I, that might have been why I had some trouble connecting to this work, is that some of the cliches, and it's okay to use cliches, but some of them I was caught in a little bit, though I did... Uh, cry at the mm-hmm. end. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, it still, it still had a big effect. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I still really um, admire this work on the whole. But I think maybe I just was uh, snared in too many things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I think that um, Barbara being this uh, surly, violent character, like, I actually kind, kind of found it interesting that you have a story that's about a like a teenage girl and she's throwing punches like and then when you kind of find out the situation of her life it's like oh like if i was presented in the real world with a situation of there's this teenager who's really surly and they're they're punching people you'd be like well that's inappropriate what's going on and it's like oh well her mother's dying of cancer you'd be like oh okay like they've got a lot of unresolved anger that's coming out and we got to get this person some help which is what the the counselor's there for like that that all played really well but yeah i feel like there were some the bully stuff some of the stuff felt kind of superfluous or could have just been like finessed um i did think it was kind of interesting that you had sophie as this big sort of uh backer for barbara and then there's the big conflict with the bully where then barbara accidentally like punches sophie in the face and it's like when sophie gets confronted gets the basically the receiving end of the violence she has to sort of reconsider her friendship with with Barbara because she's suddenly realizing like wow Barbara's really not acting appropriately like it's all funny when she's saying slurs to the gym teacher or like punching the bully but now that it's actually affecting her like she has to really reconsider that friendship you know um that was kind of interesting for me yeah I think what uh now that you say that, I think what bugged me about the bully specifically was that, like, Barbara is also a violent person, but she's given the credit of being the main character and given an explanation. Like, we mm. understand her. Mm-hmm. We we are not given any information that helps us understand the bully. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, you could see Barbara as being the school bully in some ways with <laughs> yeah. the way she acts out sometimes. Yeah, well, I guess that's it. It's like... Um, like, the entire narrative gives us, like, what we need to understand. Oh, there is a reason why Barbara is like this. Um, like, why isn't the other character given the same credit? Mm-hmm. Did there even need to be a bully? Why? W- it seems like with these stories, if it's set in a high school or middle school, mm-hmm. there's always a bully. Does there need to be a bully? I don't mm. think there does. I think that's a, a trope again. I think this is a thing. Yeah. I feel like the role of bully is on the one hand a trope that just people have in their heads as a thing uh, irrespective of reality but I also feel like it's 
time specific. I don't think it necessarily pans out in exactly the same way from when the author was in high school to now. Mm-hmm. I think the role as a trope is to establish Barbara as the underdog. Mm, and I okay. think it's pretty narrowly used in that sense. Okay. So even though Barbara is someone who acts with a lot of confidence, let's say, despite her surliness, uh, someone who has like an interesting outfit and is the protagonist and is lashing out. So so it's kind of a counter that she's lashing out, but she's also... Mm-hmm. Mm, what's the word that I'm looking for? Beset upon mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. someone. And so even though... Without that bully, I don't think Barbara would be established as an underdog. Okay. Mm. But I think it's a crude instrument to get there. Yeah. And I not, I disagree been... that it's I, – or I, I agree that it's not nece- not necessary. Mm-hmm. Like there, maybe there was a better way to, to make that happen. Yeah. But I don't know what that better way would be. Well, I mean, I think like if you want her to be the underdog, maybe just play up the conflict between her and – reality or mm-hmm. and everyone else like the fact that everyone is thinks she's crazy mm. for believing in giants and that she, you know like i think if you if you're showing the reader this unreliable narration where she's seeing all these fantastic creatures but then you have everyone else in the story being like oh what are you talking about there's no such thing as fairies like yeah. that could be the conflict like maybe it's just her versus reality essentially or barbara versus the system yeah, yeah. that yeah. that could be mm-hmm. i think an alternative way that yeah. they could have established have have more of her getting called to the principal's office or you know maybe the yeah like maybe maybe the maybe she's spending more time in detention in conflict with her teachers that could be what puts her down as the underdog and not necessarily using this bully character or her versus not having any friends mm. like more um, isolated yeah, yeah like i feel like if she's in a situation where she's being regularly bullied She's probably in a situation where she has social interactions with some of the same people. Um, and yet she doesn't really. So why would this per- why would this other kid be picking on her like so regularly? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. And there's also like the further question of does Barbara need to be the underdog for the story to work as well? Mm-hmm. Like I don't know. Did you guys find Barbara sympathetic, I guess, is the question, at the beginning mm. of the work versus the end of the mm. work? Uh, I found her sympathetic enough. Mm. Um, but I don't know. I find all kids sympathetic, so that's not <laughs> saying anything. I no. think I don't know if I connected with her right away. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually kind of thought she was a bit of a jerk. Yeah, and, yeah, she was and, that. And it, it was only actually when... I got to the end and you realize what's been going on in her life that I'm like, oh, that's why you've been such a jerk for this whole book. <laughs> yeah, I liked Barbara at the end way more. I think the yeah. the little bit of Barbara right at the end of the book really redeemed her as a character for mm-hmm. me. And uh, I think that was a good choice. I think, yeah. you know, starting Barbara as a, as maybe a negative character and then again, like you're given the reason, that, that's, that's good. So I... I'm not sure whether or not we need like we don't we don't have the luxury of a version where the underdog is mm. not established, so mm-hmm. we don't really know whether it works or not. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I was just posing the question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I would. Yeah. I mean, you were you were um, you weren't here at the introduction when I was talking about the the author and the illustrator, but um, like Joe Kelly 
this is the first sort of uh, non-superhero work of his that I've read. So he cut his teeth writing like the X-Men and he spent a long time writing Deadpool. Hmm. And so I feel that that might inform some of his writing sensibilities. And that's why this gets as sort of cliche and tropey as it does because he's conflict based yeah and conflict based because he's coming from a background of like oh well you gotta use the trope because then the reader understands what you're doing and then you go to the next conflict you know because that's sort of been maybe his sort of uh, his body of work has primarily been in that in that zone and this is a sort of a side project for him to kind of get away from that and write something a little more poignant but i feel like maybe that Marvel Comics writing has maybe affected a little bit of his approach. That makes a lot of sense to me. Now that you're, you've told me this, like yeah. I could, I feel like I could feel that <laughs> in the work. You always have to have the bully in superhero comics. Yeah, yeah. true. Uh, Every... like Peter Parker always gets bullied, right? Yeah. There's yeah. always the but bully. Peter Parker Every... was a teenager in the '60s. There <laughs> were jocks book. and nerds in the '60s. There aren't now. <laughs> They're still nerds. Like. Yeah, but they're everybody's except, a nerd. Except they yeah, run the world now. Jock. The jocks play video games That's and true. watch it's a exactly battle the between same whose uh, aesthetic blog has just, the best aesthetic. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm just thinking of that. The so, pastel goths versus the soft no. boys. Oh my god! You can cut oh. that if you want. No, give me that. <laughs> That's the title of this episode now, Jess. <laughs> no, but like on a, on a real note, though. Um, when I was growing up, I'm sure there was some there were some fist fights in high school somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I never saw them. There's unfortunately so many ways to bully somebody. Um, and it seems like no matter how many decades we go through, when there's stories that are made, if they're made in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, 2000s, 2010s, the bully always just punches the main character. Yeah. And I think it would be really interesting to see other ways of bullying. Oh, yeah. Like, I remember oh. um, one kid, like, just as an example that doesn't have physical violence, um, the, what the bullies did is they took his uh, longboard and they broke it in half, so he came back, I guess, to his locker, and there was a broken longboard inside. And that's devastating. Oh, yeah, way like, more devastating mm-hmm. than getting hit in the face. I'd rather get punched, honestly. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not, and I'm completely serious. Like, there's something a lot worse because also in a physical fight you can defend yourself and possibly win mm-hmm. you can kind of mm-hmm. come back but a lot of the bullying that i saw in real life in my high school the victim um could not retaliate because it was stuff done um sort of undercover so they'd come to their locker and there'd be a mean note or there'd be a broken mm-hmm. skateboard mm-hmm. or um i'm trying to think of an other example just you know social media stuff well, a bunch of people unfriend you at the same time yeah. It's really yeah, scary. Yeah. Well, see, I was I was actually just thinking, like, I mean, if if um, I mean, may, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm I'll, I'm I'll come off slightly out of touch here too. But like, I feel like if I was gonna write this, and it's a teenager going to school in the year 2018, like, I think you'd want to establish like a Facebook page where everyone's posting about like check out crazy Barbara who believes in giants. Okay, to be and like fair, all these negative comments about that. To be fair, like, this book was written in two thousand four. Okay. So Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. then it should have been on her MySpace page. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but no, I mean I just think like um maybe to have more online bullying or even just like if you want to even forget the internet because it's two thousand and four. Even if like you have Barbara walk up to her locker and there's just like giant killer with like an ugly caricature of her on the locker like mm-hmm. that would make more sense for bully and then you don't even need to show who did that just that yeah. someone did it and that 
people in this school don't like her. Like, that well, would be enough. That's right? the thing is, often you don't know who bullied you because if you knew, the, makes it worse. the bully would would be in trouble, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, like I, I spent a lot of time, not in high school necessarily, but I spent a lot of time in school. And if I'm going to read stories about, quote unquote, bullying, I want new information. I don't want to see stuff I've read before. I want something new and nuanced and like taking inspiration from real life and not taking inspiration from Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 We've already seen what Flash Thompson does. We can move on now. <laughs> Final thoughts? Yeah. Oh, actually, we, we already talked about the art. Did you have anything to say you wanted to say about the art? Uh, I'll just say that in light of the writing, I think the art was a good counterbalance because this it was true. a very mm-hmm. unique style. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and took it pretty far out of superhero. Yeah. Uh, I think the art was fun to look at. Nice. Aesthetically mm-hmm. pleasing. But yeah. that's it. Yeah, I hope Ken. I hope that uh, J.M. Ken Nomura does more comics because they're great. I'm sure he is. They're just (laughs) maybe not in English. Yeah. Actually, did you guys read the little, um, the little short Ken Nomura comics (laughs) at the end? No. Yeah. Uh, In in the back of the yeah. In the back of the graphic novel, both the digital and the print version. Ken has little auto bio comics about working with Joe Kelly on this project. Uh, I missed these. Actually, they were, they were cute. In in typical <laughs> mangaka fashion, <laughs> they are incredibly self depreciating. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is so cute. No, I miss these completely. <laughs> so if you maybe if you're listening to our podcast and you haven't read the little auto bio comics that Ken did at the back of the book, go read those. They're great. Mm-hmm. Um. Cute. So, I guess we should do um, Would You Recommend and then shoutouts. So, hmm. uh, Would You Recommend, uh, I guess because I'm the recommender, I'll say, I think, yeah, I would I would recommend, but maybe I would uh, sort of also maybe have a little bit of a disclaimer at the beginning. Be like, well, there's a little bit of tropey stuff, but you can get past that. The end is really good, so it's worth it for the ending, so read it. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of interesting stuff happening here. Uh, I would probably recommend this. Uh, I don't think I would recommend it to like a first time comic reader because in order to mm. get the value of the interesting stuff that's happening here, I think you have to have read a bunch of other stuff and then come to this and say, "Oh, look, here's a different way to do things." So yeah, I would probably recommend it. Yeah, I'd say it's worth checking out. I don't know if it has something that's. I, I don't know specifically who I would recommend it to mm. in the sense of like, oh, you've got to see this because of X. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if you're if you have a copy and you can lend it to someone, it could be a good uh, w- worth reading. I think the the internal narrative makes it worth reading. Yeah, I was really glad that I read this. I probably wouldn't have picked it out off of a shelf. So it was a great opportunity to be exposed to something that I might not have picked. So I really respect this work, and I think it's ultimately a good comic. I don't know if I would recommend it, just for my personal taste. If I did, it would probably be to another artist if they were looking for examples of unreliable narration in comics. Because mm. I think that is something, the more that we talked about, the more I became kind of fascinated with that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then, so we do our shout-outs? Sure. I'm... Jeff Ellis, and uh, I'm going to shout out uh, Tonoharu by Lars Martinson because he finally got his third and final volume published, and he has a really interesting YouTube video about why it took him like 10 years to finish three volumes of comics. <laughs> so I recommend 
uh, Tonoharu by Lars Martinson. And then uh, just in because it's related to the subject matter, uh, I just wanted to mention to our listeners that I am doing the Ride to Conquer Cancer in August. So I'm going to be riding for two days straight on my bicycle to fight cancer. And if you want to donate some money to my ride, I still haven't made my goal. And if you go to conquercancer.ca, I am rider 322257-1. So if you look me up, you can donate to my ride to conquer cancer. I would appreciate that if you donated some money. So thank you. Okay. Um, I'm Jonathan Dalton. Uh, You can find my work at phobos-comic.com. Uh, and my shout out is going to be for the uh, Ancillary series by Anne Leckie, which I am currently reading the third book of, and they are fantastic. I love them to bits. I can't remember if I've shouted out these books before, but the first book is Ancillary Justice, and I love it, love it, love it. It was written for me. <laughs> Not really, but it feels like it. Yay. Uh, my name is Jam. You can find my work at wastedtalent.ca. Today I'm going to shout out an anime. I mm. recently finished re-watching Evangelion, which oh. I watched <laughs> as a teen and thought it was amazing. And I rewatch it now in my 30s and I thought it was even more amazing. Mm. So uh, one of those, I, don't, I can't think of other works where I went back to revisit my nostalgia and was actually even huh. more impressed. So consider re-watching Evangelion if you haven't watched it in a long time. I am a huge fan of Evangelion memes. I've never <laughs> seen the series. I probably should so that I understand the memes. Yeah. Will it enhance your enjoyment of the memes? I think it will. Or They're decrease pretty it. good memes. They're Get universally the good memes. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I'm going to shout out a webcomic called Long Exposure um, by an artist who goes by Mars. You can read the comic on Tapas. And it's about the relationship, it's set in high school, it's about the relationship between the protagonist and their bully. And it's one of the most unique stories I've read, the most unique depictions of that relationship. Um, It's really interesting. They really captured the feeling of school, I think, of high school, of that time. There's romance, there's a bit of sci-fi, or maybe magic, and Mm. it's a great, it's a great read. Check it out. Awesome. Okay. okay, and what are we reading next time, Jonathan? Uh, our next uh, book is going to be The Complete Persepolis by Marjani Satrapi. Ooh, okay. And The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. Thanks to the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in the Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaiters.tumblr.com as well as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.